ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد so carrying on then from where we left off, which was Ash-Shubhatu-Sadisah, the sixth doubt, and that is basically summarized as Anna al-Nabiyya sallallahu alayhi wa sallama u'atiya shafa'a wa annaha tutlabu minhu. This sixth doubt basically revolves around their claim or their statement that the Prophet ﷺ has been given shafa'ah, which is true. He has been given shafa'ah. And so we are simply seeking something that the Prophet ﷺ has been given. He's been given shafa'ah, and so we are only seeking something from him that he has been given, as though to claim and to make their point that you cannot criticize them for anything. They are not doing anything outside of the boundaries. They are only seeking from the Prophet wasallam that which he has been given. And in the previous sections, we did conclude and understand and realize that yes, of course, the Prophet ﷺ has been given shafa'a. But you could say that the intercession that the Prophet ﷺ has been given is three types or you could categorize the topic of shafa'ah with the Prophet ﷺ in three broad categories. Category one, seeking the shafa'ah from the Prophet ﷺ whilst he was alive. And that is something which is evidenced. And we mentioned the example last time of the rain and when he made the dua for them. So that is something known that the companions would and did go to the Prophet ﷺ during his lifetime asking him uh, to make the dua for the rain or other affairs of that nature. That occurred. The second broad category is regarding the intercession of the Prophet ﷺ in the afterlife. And that we have already established is proven also. So that is okay. That is also proven. And there are conditions to the affirmed intercessions that we've covered last time. 
the third broad category in the topic of intercession with the Prophet ﷺ is to seek his intercession in this world after his death. The first category was going to the messenger in this world whilst he was alive. That is established from the companions. The second, in the afterlife. That is established. But the third broad category, going to the Prophet ﷺ in this world after his death, then that is the type that is impermissible. That is the type where shirk or the door to shirk is opened up. And the mushrikun, their affair falls into category number three from the ones we've just mentioned, that they wish to go to the Prophet ﷺ seeking his intercession in this world after his death. And that is something which is not established from the companions in fact, as we mentioned last time, the opposite is established from the companions. That after the death of the Prophet ﷺ, they didn't go to him when there was a drought. They didn't go to him asking him to make the dua to Allah. Rather, they went to Abbas as it's mentioned in that narration. So those are three broad categories when it comes to the shafa'a and the Prophet ﷺ. Two of them established, the third one not established. The third one going to him now after his death, then that is the one that leads to the door of shirk and is not established or evidenced or proven or permissible. And so this sixth doubt, already then you can understand the mushrikun are not going to have any basis for it because their concept of seeking from the Prophet ﷺ that which he has been given is based upon a manner, a method that is clearly impermissible going to him now after his death. And whether it's the Prophet ﷺ they call upon, or it is others deceased that they call upon, from the Salihun, from the righteous, then we know from the Salaf what was established with them on the whole, broadly speaking, what was established with the Salaf is that the dead Generally speaking, the Salihun, the righteous, everybody, the dead do not hear you. That is established from the Salaf on the whole, that the dead do not hear you, except for the exceptions and the specific narrations that have been mentioned. For example, the narration regarding when a person is buried, and then his family walks away, he hears their 
footsteps as they leave. So there are some specific narrations, but on the whole, what is established is that the dead do not hear. So here then, فَإِنْ If they say, النَّبِيُّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ أُعْطِيَ الشَّفَاعَةُ وَأَنَا أَطْلُبُهُ مِمَّا أَعْطَاهُ اللَّهِ If they say the Prophet ﷺ was given intercession, and so I am only seeking from him that which he has been given. It's not like I'm seeking something which is outside of what he's been given, something outside of the boundaries. I'm seeking within the boundaries of what the Prophet has been given. So that is what they will claim, that you cannot have any problem with me and my action. I am not going outside of the boundaries. I am seeking from the Messenger that which he has been given by Allah. And has he? Yes, he has. And this is the meaning of doubts. They bring something which has a basis, it has truth to it, but then they mix with that falsehood, and that is what the nature of a doubt is. A doubt is something where there is a basis to it, there is truth to it. But then some falsehood is mixed in with it, and so it becomes doubtful. Otherwise, Something which is blatantly incorrect and false from its basis, that isn't a doubt. That isn't then a doubt. If I say to you, the walls are painted black. Have I cast a doubt into the hearts of those sitting in this room right now? No, unless there is somebody without their glasses. There is no doubt in that affair. If I say to you, the walls are painted black. There is no doubt in my statement, it isn't a shubha, it's blatantly incorrect and false. There's nothing to be doubtful about, they're all white, everybody with their eyes can see. No doubt in that. But if I suddenly start saying, this is apricot white from Dulux, and it is not the olive white. Now all of a sudden, which one is it? Hmm. It's white, they all have a similar shade. Now you don't know and you would be confused. Is it that shade or is it that shade? A doubt is something where there's a basis to be confused over. If there's no basis to be confused in the first place, it's not a doubt. So here they bring some basis to create a confusion. The Prophet ﷺ, was he given intercession by Allah or not? Yes, he was. I am only asking from him what he has already been given and that you accept he has been given. So you say yes. Now all of a sudden he brings that doubt then. I'm not going outside of the boundaries. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm only asking for what the Prophet has. He's been given that. فَالْجَوَابِ So we say to them, أَنَّ اللَّهَ أَعْطَاهُ الشَّفَاعَةَ وَنَهَاكَ عَنْ هَذَا We say very basically, yes, Allah has given the Prophet ﷺ intercession, but despite that, 
He has prohibited you from this action of yours, of calling upon the messenger now after his death, seeking that intercession from him. Allah has given him intercession, but has prohibited you from this action of yours in seeking it from him after his death. فَقَالَ تَعَالَى And Allah has said, فَلَا تَدْعُوا مَعَ اللَّهِ أَحَدًا And do not call upon Allah alongside Allah anyone. Do not call upon anyone alongside Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is definitive, that you do not call upon anyone besides Allah. Any claim of seeking intercession or seeking this or seeking that. فَلَا تَدْعُوا مَعَ اللَّهِ أَحَدًا Do not call upon Allah subhanahu wa alongside Allah upon anyone else. And everybody knows regarding النَّكِرَةُ فِي سَيَاقِ nafi. When you have an indefinite word in the context of negation, then the meaning of it is العموم. It is generalized broadly to everything. فَلَا تَدْعُوا مَعَ اللَّهِ أَحَدًا Do not call alongside Allah anyone. نَكِرَ فِي سَيَاقِ النَّفِي it is an indefinite word in the context of negation and therefore it includes everything. Do not call upon anyone alongside Allah. Be it the prophets, be it the messengers, be it the angels, be it the righteous, whomsoever. Fal-jawab, so in the answer in detail then from Sheikh Ibrahim Ali Sheikh, Muhammad Ibrahim Ali Sheikh, Naam. Yes, Allah has given him intercession. And he is at the head of all of those who will intercede. On the day of judgment, we went through those examples. But the one who gave him that intercession, which is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who Allah, he is the one who has prohibited you from this. He is the one who has prohibited you from this. He has forbidden you from calling upon the messenger, asking him for this intercession now. So it is from the ignorance of them that they seek something that Allah has prohibited them from seeking. فَقَالَ تَعَالَى فَلَا تَدْعُوا مَعَ اللَّهِ أَحَدًا فَهَذَا نَهْيٌ عَنْ دَعْوَةِ غَيْرِ اللَّهِ So it is very clear that when Allah said to us, do not call upon anyone alongside Allah, that this is an absolute prohibition 
in calling upon anyone besides Allah, even calling upon the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. فَإِذَا كُنْتَ تَدْعُ اللَّهِ أَنْ يُشَفِّعَ نَبِيَّهُ فِيكَ فَأَطِعْهُ فِي قَوْلِهِ فَلَا تَدْعُ مَعَ اللَّهِ أَحَدًا So if you are calling upon Allah that the Prophet may be as an intercession for you, then obey Allah. If you want intercession to occur for you, and you want the intercession of the Prophet wasallam, then obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is from the principles of the Qur'an. قُلْ إِن كُنْتُمْ تُحِبُّونَ اللَّهِ فَاتَّبِعُونِي That say, if you truly love Allah, then follow me. The sign of loving Allah is that you obey His commandments. And it is not that you disobey and that you oppose and contradict what is in the revelation. So here, if you desire the intercession of the Prophet, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, then obey His commandments. Obey the commandments of Allah and the Messenger. Obey the revelation. إِذَا كُنْتَ تَرْجُوا أَن تَكُونَ أَهْلًا لِشَفَاعَةِ سَيِّدِ شُفَاعَا فَوَحِّدِ اللَّهِ وَأَخْلِصْ لَهُ الْعَمَلِ تَنَلْ شَفَاعَةَ الْمُصْطَفَى So if you hope to be from those who are deserving of the intercession of the Prophet ﷺ, then be from those who are upon the Tawheed of Allah, worshipping Allah upon Tawheed, and making your actions sincere for Him, making your actions sincere for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and this is something we hear all the time. But as a student of knowledge, hear everyone. Then you do not allow these types of things to be heard in one ear and to exit from the other. You hear all the time regarding sincerity. Sincerity of action. Sincerity in your ibadah. It is not something that you allow to enter and exit without thought. The Salaf, they used to say, مَا عَالَجْتُ شَيْئًا أَشَدَّ عَلَيَّ مِن نِيَّتِي يَوْمًا لَكَ وَيَوْمًا عَلَيْكَ Sufyan al-Thawri maybe, that I have not had to deal with anything more difficult than my own intention. Never had to deal with something more difficult had to interact with something more difficult than my own intention. One day it is with you, you're sincere, but one day it is against you. Meaning you have to constantly be revising your intention, constantly looking at yourself and your actions, your statements, what are you doing and why are you doing it? Are you sincere in what you are doing? Or is it something that is being done for, alter, for ulterior motives, for some other purpose? And we know the narration regarding the three men who are cast into the fire. 
one of them who fought jihad and was killed, martyred, as it was seen by the people. And so it will be said to him on the day of judgment, all of the blessings that you were given, what did you do with them? He will say that he fought in the path of Allah. He will say to Allah, قَاتَلْتُ فِيكَ I fought for your sake. Sincerely meaning, I fought for your sake. حَتَّى to the extent that I was martyred in the end, killed by your enemies, meaning. But it will be said to him, Kathabt, you have lied. You only used to fight so that the people would say about you how brave and courageous he is, how bold he is, brave he is, courageous he is. That was your intention. So then it is mentioned he is taken upon his face, dragged and thrown into the fire. Another individual, تعلم القرآن وعلمه وتعلم العلم وعلمه A person who learnt knowledge, learnt the Qur'an and then taught it. And then he will say on the day of judgment that he did so for the sake of Allah and he will be told, you have lied. You only did so ليقال قارئ So that the people would say, what a beautiful reciter you are. وَقَدْ And it was said, you got the praise of the people you wanted. So then he is dragged upon his face and thrown into the fire. A third individual, وَصَّعَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him wealth. And so it will be said to him, what did you do with the blessings Allah gave you? Meaning the wealth you were given. He will say that I did not leave any pathway that you love for charity to be given in except that I gave charity in those pathways. مَا تَرَكْتُ مِن سَبِيلٍ تُحِبُّ أَنْ يُنْفَقَ فِيهَا إِلَّا أَنْفَقْتُ فِيهَا But then it will be said to him, even though he did, he gave in charity. All of them, they did the actions they were claiming. But it will be said to him, كَذَبْ you only did that ليقال جواد سخي So that the people would say, MashaAllah, how generous such and such is. How good he is, how charitable he is. وَقَدْ And the people indeed said that. You got the praise you desired from your actions. So he is dragged and thrown into the fire. The scholars, they say, the obvious point regarding intention, those who have a corrupt intention, then this is the end result. Your actions can all be destroyed with corrupt intentions. But the other point they make as well, which is extremely important from this narration, they say, look at these individuals. They were punished for doing what? For doing what looked like and what were physically, in the appearance, they were actually good deeds. They were cast into the fire for doing what appeared and was in essence good deeds.
in essence, meaning to the physical eye, to what was seen from them, to what was noticed and experienced from them, they were righteous actions. One of them fought, did fight and was killed. The other one taught the people, he did. The other one gave in charity, he did. Righteous actions they did. And yet they are cast into the fire for righteous actions that they did because the actions, even though they looked righteous, in reality they were not righteous. In reality, they were based upon corrupt intentions. So a person, a talib al-ilm, always looks to himself in this regard. What is your state of affairs with your intention? What is your intention behind this statement and that action? A person examines himself as the Salaf they always did. So here then, فَإِذَا كُنْتَ تَدْعُوا اللَّهَ أَنْ يُشَفِّعَ نَبِيَّهُ فِيكَ فَأَطِعُوا فِي قَوْلِهِ فَلَا تَدْعُوا مَعَ اللَّهِ أَحَدًا So if you desire, <coughs> if you desire to be from those whom are given the intercession of the Prophet وسلم, then be from those who obey the commandments and obey that which has come to us in the Qur'an and the Sunnah, who are obedient. And that is the requirement to be deserving of the, inter- of the intercession of the Prophet The second reply that can be given to this individual upon his claim, and remember his claim was, the Prophet has been given intercession, so I am sticking within those boundaries and just asking of what he's been given, not outside of that. The second answer we give, وَأَيْضًا فَإِنَّ الشَّفَاعَةَ أُعْطِيَهَا غَيْرُ النَّبِيِّ صلى الله عليه وسلم فَصَحَّ أَنَّ الْمَلَائِكَةَ يَشْفَعُونَ وَالْأَوْلِيَاءُ يَشْفَعُونَ وَالْأَفْرَاطُ يَشْفَعُونَ أَتَقُولُ إِنَّ اللَّهَ أَعْطَاهُمُ الشَّفَاعَةَ فَأَطْلُبُهَا مِنْهُمْ You say to him upon the basis of your argument that the Prophet ﷺ has been given intercession from Allah. So I am only seeking from him that which he has been given, not going outside of those boundaries. You say to him, well in that case, upon the basis of your argument, we know it is established and proven by evidences that there are others besides the Messenger ﷺ who have been given intercession. On the Day of Judgment, for example, the believers will be given intercession. They will intercede for their believers, for their believing brothers and sisters. And the children on that day it is established will be given intercession and they will intercede for their parents. And the angels, it is established on that day, are given intercession. So then upon the basis of your claim, are you also going to then say, it is permissible for you to seek intercession from the angels and to seek intercession from the believers and the children to seek intercession from these others whom it is established Allah has given them intercession to. They will intercede on the Day of Judgment too. 
So you would be within the boundaries, according to your statement, to ask them for intercession too. Ask the angels. You'll be within the boundaries of what you're saying. Allah has given the angels intercession, and you're only seeking that which Allah has given them. Allah gave those believers and their children the righteous intercession, and you're only seeking of them within the boundaries of what Allah gave them. According to your statement then, and your logic, that would be legitimate and correct too. And of course we know that is completely incorrect. And it is not permissible for him to call upon the angels and to call upon the righteous. And we've already gone through the evidences proving the impermissibility of that, of calling upon the angels or calling upon the righteous, etc. فَإِنْ قُلْتَ So then upon the methodology of the shaykh, he now says, so when you give this argument to him, if he turns around and says, yes, he says, yes, you're right. You're right, yes, I can actually, yeah. Allah has given the angels intercession, so I can seek it from them. And Allah has given it to the righteous and the children, etc., so I can seek it from them. If he says yes, then he's gone back to what we've already discussed and refuted. If he says yes to that, he's gone back, he has gone back to what we have already discussed and refuted before. Calling upon the angels, calling upon others, besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So فَإِنْ قُلْتَ هَذَا If you were to say yes to this, رَجَعْتَ إِلَىٰ عِبَادَةِ صَالِحِينَ الَّتِي ذَكَرَهَ اللَّهُ فِي كِتَابِهِ If you say yes, then you have gone back to the worship of the righteous, uh, which Allah mentioned in His book. That they call upon the righteous, and they call upon the prophets, and they call upon the angels. And all of that was mentioned before. So if he says yes to it, he's gone back to all the same arguments that we've already covered and refuted him for before. But if he says no, that's not allowed. Then in that case, then his statement is nullified. It's finished, crushed. His claim then that I am only seeking from him that which Allah has given him, then his claim is finished if he accepts and he admits that you cannot call upon someone just because Allah has given him that shafa'ah. It isn't open in that way, rather it is restricted. The Prophet ﷺ has been given shafa'ah, but it is restricted. Like we mentioned the three broad categories during his lifetime or in the afterlife, but not here now after his death calling upon him and making dua to him. So it is not an open affair in that way. So then, فَإِنْ قَالْ أَنَا لَا أُشْرِكُ بِاللَّهِ شَيْئًا If he says, I do not commit shirk with Allah, that cannot be, no way, not a chance, I am not committing shirk with Allah. He says, no, not at all, I am not committing shirk with Allah, not at all. Rather, the action of uh, 
seeking resort, returning back to these righteous, is not shirk in the first place. That action of resorting to the righteous and returning back to them and seeking their help, that isn't shirk in the first place. So then say to him, إِذَا كُنْتَ تُقِرُّ أَنَّ اللَّهَ حَرَّمَ الشِّرْكَ If you acknowledge that Allah has made shirk haram, أَعْظَمَ مِنْ تَحْرِيمِ zina, Even greater in severity of prohibition than fornication. Allah has made shirk haram to an even greater level of severity than fornication. So for example, you find that as Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab highlights that very point in several other books too, that shirk is the greatest sin and the greatest prohibition. And so for example, in the three fundamental principles, as Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab says, وَأَعْظَمُ مَا نَهَى اللَّهُ عَنْهُ الشِّرْكِ وَهُوَ دَعْوَةُ غَيْرِهِ مَعْهِ The greatest affair that Allah has prohibited you from is shirk. And that is calling upon others alongside him. So you say to him, if you acknowledge that, and you acknowledge that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not forgive it for the one who dies upon it. Just as Allah mentioned in the Quran, Allah does not forgive that you commit shirk alongside him, but he forgives all else to whom he wills. So you acknowledge that too. فَمَا هَذَا الْأَمْرُ الَّذِي حَرَّمَهُ اللَّهُ وَذَكَرَ أَنَّهُ لَا يَغْفِرُ So then say to him, you acknowledge all of that shirk and you acknowledge Allah does not forgive that for the one who dies upon it. Then what exactly is that shirk? You acknowledge it, that shirk is the greatest sin and Allah does not forgive it for the one who dies upon it. Then what is that? Because right now he's trying to tell you resorting to the righteous isn't shirk. So then you say to him, you acknowledge shirk and it's the greatest sin and Allah does not forgive it for the one who dies upon it. Then what is that then? What is that shirk if this action of yours isn't? returning back to the deceased and to the righteous and calling upon them. This isn't shirk, then what is? What in your mind actually constitutes shirk then? فَإِنَّهُ لَا يَدْرِي The shaykh says, he will have no clue. He will have no idea in reality. You ask him that question, he will not have a clue. How can he possibly have a clue? He claims resorting to the righteous and to the deceased isn't shirk. 
then what is shirk in his mind? Completely confused, completely ignorant, completely misguided. He won't have a clue what to say. Then say to him, How are you declaring your innocence from shirk and in reality you don't know what shirk is? How are you declaring your innocence from shirk and in reality you don't even know what shirk is? And that's why Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab also highlights in some of his other books the importance of knowing what shirk is, that you must know what tawheed is, and you must know what shirk is in order to be able to protect yourself from it. As they say, كَيْفَ يَتَّقِي مَنْ لَا يَعْرِفْ مَا يَتَّقِي How can somebody protect themselves from something if they do not know what they are supposed to be protecting themselves from? How can you protect yourself from shirk and preserve yourself and guard yourself from not falling into shirk if you don't know what shirk actually is? And it's like the example they give of an individual who walks down a pathway, an alleyway, dark alleyway in the woods at night for the first time. And this particular alleyway, this particular pathway has potholes everywhere. And it's the first time you're going down that alleyway, that pathway through the woods in the dark, full of potholes everywhere. What's going to happen? You will inevitably fall into some of the potholes. You will inevitably fall into some of the potholes because it's dark, it's the first time you're going along that path. You don't know where those potholes are. So you will inevitably fall into some of them. Whereas a person who knows that pathway has been on it many times during the day, knows where the big potholes are, knows that the first one comes up on the left after about 50 meters, knows the next one comes up on the right after another 50 meters, knows these things. So even if he goes down that pathway at night in the dark, he will know initially stay to the right side to avoid the big one that comes up on the left first, 50 meters or so. Guess that roughly, when he knows he's beyond the 50, then he'll move over to the left because he knows the next one's coming on the right. He knows the path. He knows the potholes. He can avoid them. But the one who does not know what to defend and protect himself from, then he will not be able to do so. Doesn't know where the potholes are, he's going to fall into them. So the Shaykh says, how can you declare your innocence from something that you have no idea about? And you know, these statements, they are very simple, short, concise. How can you defend, uh, 
declare your innocence from something you don't know about. A very simple, simple statement. But it requires thinking about. The Shaykh is making a very clear point. The believer needs to be upon knowledge of Tawheed and Shirk so that you can be upon Tawheed and you can avoid Shirk. How are you going to do that? Through seeking knowledge. And we've mentioned many a time before Kitab al-Tawheed of Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, one of the most basic principal books to highlight to you the different types of shirk. Every chapter talks about a type of shirk so that you're aware of what those types of shirk are. And yet, the reality is masses of the Muslims will not know the various chapters of Kitab al-Tawheed. Not even talking about memorizing, not even talking about somebody having memorized Kitab al-Tawheed, there will be masses of Muslims out there, you quote to them a full chapter and the types of shirk, and they won't have any clue that those are types of shirk and they've never heard that this was actually shirk and that it's impermissible to do this or to do that. Never heard of it in their lives. Kitab al-Tawheed, from the basic simple affairs in every chapter, and masses of the Muslims out there would not know these affairs. You pick a chapter out and you tell them the impermissibility of amulets and talismans. You pick a chapter out and tell them the impermissibility of cursing the wind and cursing time. How many people do that without even recognizing and realizing what they're doing and what they're saying? without even recognizing and realizing their statements may be incorrect. They have an accident, they're in a, a bus. You're in a bus and you have an accident, but the driver has good skills and he manages to swerve and swerve and this way, that way, and manages to avoid a big accident, only minor injuries. And you come back saying, was it not for the, the driver, that pro driver last night? There would have been people dead. That statement of yours constitutes an element of shirk in it. And how many people would randomly and casually make those kinds of statements? Not recognizing and realizing the real meaning behind them. It's not because of the skill of the driver that you were saved. Was it not for that professional driver last night? I think I would have been gone. I think the first five rows, they would have been gone because he swerved and we just missed it. Was it not for the driver? I think it would have been this, it would have been that. No, it is not because of the skill of the driver that you were saved. It is not because of the skill of the driver you were saved. And so your statement is not accurate in that way. Rather, it is by the blessing of Allah and the decree of Allah, the virtue of Allah that He saved you and protected you. Not by the skill of one in creation, that driver. So many things. So many examples. And if you were to ask the masses of the Muslims, do you know these affairs? They would not know them. And this is a point that the scholars make on a regular basis. Whenever you see the Ikhwan al-Muslimin, al-Ikhwan al-Muslimin talking about the various countries and this is happening and that's happening and the kuffar are attacking us in this country and they're killing and they're murdering and they are uh, conquering and taking over that land and this land. 
the scholars they say, as a Shaykh Al-Ithameen used to say, there are two ways to look at these affairs. There are two ways to look at these affairs. And so few people recognize this or even ever mention it. Because they don't have this understanding that the scholars have. And Shaykh Al-Ithameen said when people are complaining about these things, as they always do, Palestine, Iraq, this, that, the other, Look at the kuffar, they're taking over, they're doing this, they're doing that. As Shaykh Al-Athameen said, there are two ways to look at these things. One is the worldly perspective. The worldly perspective you look at it, the economic perspective, the political perspective. And that's what the masses of the people look at. Look at the kuffar and they want to take the oil and this and that and that's why they're doing this and that's what and they're conquering and taking over and they're doing this in Palestine, they're doing this in Iraq, they're doing this in Syria. Everybody looks at the perspective of politics, economics, wealth, oil, this, that, the other. That's how everybody looks at things and talks about things. As Shaykh Al-Athimeen said, don't forget the second perspective on these affairs. The second perspective on these affairs is the Shari perspective. The legislative way of thinking about things, which is that Allah has decreed this matter to occur. So examine yourselves. Why has this matter occurred? Is it possibly because of shortcomings that you yourselves are in? Is it possibly because the Muslims themselves have abandoned the correct aqidah, the tawheed, the sunnah? They are performing shirk and around graves and all types of things. And what do you expect that Allah has decreed the kuffar overtake you and that your power and your honor is gone? You have not honored the Quran and the Sunnah and you expect honor. If you wish for that, then return back to the Quran and the Sunnah and the implementation of the Quran and the Sunnah. And that's why the scholars, they say, if you're not doing that, then what is your objective behind demonstrations and this and that? Let's go and demonstrate outside the embassy because of the oppression they are doing upon our Muslims in such a country. MashaAllah, when was the last time you got up on time for Fajr? But we're going to go and demonstrate because of the oppression upon the Muslims. You yourselves do not honor the legislation and then you expect honor for the Muslims. The scholars, they say, don't forget this perspective. Don't forget this perspective of yourself. Even now, as Shaykh Al-Fawzan the other day, speaking about this affair regarding the kuffar and what they did in terms of those drawings of the Prophet ﷺ, mentioned of course the, the evil of this action, etc. without a doubt. But then he also highlighted the important point. He said also along the lines of, and the clip is there and it can be seen, he mentioned, don't forget to look at yourself. Don't stand there now and say, look what they've done and all this anger and everything. And you yourself don't even honor the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ yourself. You yourself don't even pray your prayers on time or don't know how many other sins and wrongs and contradictions to the sunnah you do. But this happens now all of a sudden. The Shaykh said, don't forget yourself. This is a reminder to you. A reminder to you regarding the rights of the Prophet wasallam. A reminder to you regarding what the honor of the Prophet wasallam in reality is. And what is that? To obey him in what he commanded us with. 
to follow that sunnah that he came with. That is honor for the messenger. Not like many of them you'll see with regret. They have the zealousness, the honor of the Prophet and they did this and they did that. And maybe many of them, maybe many of them, they have not got up for Fajr on time for who knows how long. They are not honoring the sunnah. The Shaykh said, look at yourselves and reflect at this time. It's a time to reflect and it's a time to remind you. The kuffar, what they've done, he said, they have done that throughout history. That isn't going to stop. That is the way of the kuffar and what they do. But you need to examine the honor of the messenger now. Think about this. Are you yourself honoring the messenger as he should be? So the Muslim needs to be upon understanding and insight with these affairs. Not go like the al-ikhwan al-muslimin. Anything happens like those ikhwanis and takfir. The kuffar, this, the kuffar, that. And mashallah, you've missed fajr for two weeks in a row now. But the kuffar, this and the kuffar, that. What about you and your rights and obligations to Allah? Don't forget the second perspective. As Shaykh al used to say, don't become blinded by the ikhwanis and kuffar, kuffar, this, kuffar, that. And forget completely about your own aqidah. You haven't even got a clue. You pick up a chapter from Kitab al-Tawheed and narrate it to you. You haven't got a clue what that is. That shirk? How? What? Haven't got a clue. So the Muslim needs to understand the reality of affairs. The Salaf had honor primarily because of their implementation and their clinging on to the Quran and the Sunnah. They implemented it, they practiced it, and Allah gave them honor and strength. Now the Muslims want that honor and strength. It requires that once again to return back and to implement and practice. And the only way that can be done is to learn it first, to learn that Quran, to learn that Sunnah, to learn the affairs of Tawheed, to learn the affairs of Shirk. You don't have time. You don't have time. Nobody can think to themselves, I've got a long life. All your life you carry on seeking knowledge and you'll barely touch the surface. There is not enough time. There is no time for any wasting. A Shaykh Abdul Razak, he once said to us in the Masters, this was right at the beginning, right at the beginning, like in the introduction, right at the beginning of the year to get everybody's minds fixed. All the students, their minds fixed. First, he said to everybody in the class, he said in the olden days, the master's program, there used to be only five people who used to be picked. So they were the, what do you call it, like the creme de la creme. Five people used to be picked. Now he says 20 get picked. 20 get picked, you know, five really good ones and 15 of them are They all get thrown in. 20 of you get picked now. So he started with that for a start. And then he said, think about your time. He said, think about your life. Think about your life. A third of your life, a third of it, that's a big proportion, 33%. A third of your life, you spend where? Asleep. A third of your life is gone asleep. He said, that's a third gone. You live for 90 years, 30 years of your life have gone in sleep. A third of your life, 24 hours in the day, you sleep eight hours a night maybe. A third of your day, of every day, gone. Then he said, another third of your day, I don't remember the exact example, but another third of your day in your 
other affairs of work and this and that and people have things they need to do in their lives you have other work you have maybe your your actual work employment and this and that and other daily affairs of your life a third of it gone in there a third of your day will go to that eight hours of work at least a normal shift nine to five etc a third of your day is gone in that then after that also you have to factor in I remember him mentioning food and drink and all these things it's a part of your day you have to eat you have to drink you have to answer the call of nature there are various things that are musts you do them every day when you factor in all of those things the reality is of every day you have only a fraction of your time left for studying and for for the serious focus on knowledge and memorization maybe down to a third 90 years of your life only a third of that you've got dedicated in reality when you take out the affairs that in reality most people have you only have a third of your life left if that if that if a person was to work out their percentages now normal percentages forget about all the affairs that have happened recently covid and work and the way things have happened your percentages normally a person goes to work maybe eight nine in the morning comes back five in the evening nine hours of your day gone eight hours in sleep gone you come back you got your family to look after you got this to do you got shopping to do you would be doing good to get one or two hours a day into study time that's the reality isn't it? for most people two hours a night if you can go away leave your family sit in your room for two hours a night that would be a huge thing and I doubt there would be many people who even manage two hours a night two hours out of your 24 what's the percentage there two hours out of your 24 hours in your day there is no time if a person's gonna spend those two hours that two or three hours you got left in reality when you take everything else out of the equation that needs to be done as is the reality for people's lives you're gonna waste that chance that two or three hours left on useless affairs then you are wasting your life Shaykh Abdul Razak he mentioned that example and he gave the example of a third that all you have left is a third here in the UK and other places we know the reality for the majority of the people is you would be you would be an alim you'd be from the scholars of the West if you spent a third of your time in seeking knowledge we don't get anywhere near that People don't get anywhere near that. One hour a day squeezed, two hours a day squeezed out. So if that's the affair, and that's the reality, when you think about it in that way, you do not have time to waste. You do not have time to mess about. He used to say to us also at the end, at the end of the year, when you go back for the summer holidays in England or in, uh, in your countries, when you go back, he used to say, make a timetable written out physically written out July August September three months holidays write it out July week one I'm gonna do this that the other I need to memorize this book I need to finish off that XYZ July week two I need to do this that the other week three week four August week one week two have your timetable written out physically he used to say before you fly back to your country because if you fly back and you land back home he would say you're gonna end up wasting it wasting your summer family and this and that and relaxing it will be gone make a written down timetable now before you go and that's why you see the narration too 
The Prophet Sallallahu used to say, he used to seek refuge from ilmin la yanfa' knowledge that does not benefit you. How much time do the people spend in affairs that are useless in reality? What is actually knowledge that doesn't benefit you? What is the definition of that? How could we define if a person thinks to himself, okay, how do I decide if that's useful for me or it's not useful for me? What is knowledge that does not benefit? That which doesn't bring you benefit in the dunya or the akhirah. That which doesn't bring you benefit in the dunya or akhirah. Anyone else? Something that doesn't concern you. Knowledge that isn't acted upon, that's a different type of category. One of the easiest ways, there are different explanations the scholars have given to break down what this is, knowledge that does not benefit. One of the things they mentioned is, knowledge that if you didn't know it, it wouldn't harm you. Something that if you didn't know it, it wouldn't harm you. Knowledge of the Quran and the Sunnah, if you don't know it, it does harm you in a way because it means you are restricted in your knowledge of your religion, you are restricted in your ability to worship Allah. So obviously, knowledge of the Quran and the Sunnah, if you don't know it, it's going to harm you. You may fall into bid'ah, you may fall into shirk. That harms you. But knowledge that doesn't harm you if you don't know it. If you're ignorant of it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect you, it doesn't harm you. They say that is one way to think about knowledge that is of no use, knowledge that is of no benefit. Knowledge that even if you don't know it, it doesn't change anything. It doesn't affect you, it doesn't harm you. It does not harm you. That's one way to think of it. Another way to think of it, or it's the same thing but phrased differently, they say knowledge that does not increase your iman in any way. Any type of knowledge that does not increase your iman, it is ilmun la yanfa. Knowledge that is of no benefit. Also they say, knowledge that does not do tahdibun nafs. Knowledge that doesn't purify your soul and increase you in your... Uh, in your etiquette, in your morals, in your in yourself, it doesn't purify you, it doesn't bring about any purification for your soul. <coughs> knowledge that doesn't do that, then it's of no benefit. Because the reality of knowledge is that it is purifying for the soul of the believer. If it doesn't do that, it doesn't bring you any of that type of benefit either. It doesn't increase you in iman, doesn't purify you in any way. It maybe does the opposite, corrupts you and brings badness to you and evil to you in what you see and hear. So that is knowledge of no benefit. And the third thing they say, knowledge that does not increase you in your mu'amalat. And what they mean by that particularly is the halal and the haram. Knowledge that doesn't increase you in your knowledge of the religion, what's halal, what's haram, what's permissible, what's not. Knowledge that isn't connected to anything like that, then it's knowledge that doesn't benefit. Knowledge that isn't of any benefit. So those types of categories they mention. So you can think. You can think. Because these days, the scholars have spoken about this too. Sheikh Al-Fawzan himself often mentions this too. 
regarding the social media these days and what we have now, WhatsApp and Telegram and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all these different things people have. It is very easy for that two or three hours you've squeezed out, you sit down on your phone and before you know it, you turn your phone off and there's your two hours gone. Because all you've done is spent your two hours reading forwards and reading uh, uh, other uh, clips or whatever might be forwarded around everywhere, anywhere. Did you stop to think, is that really something which is going to increase me in my Iman in some way? Is that really something that is going to purify my soul in some way? Is that something that increases me in my knowledge of my religion in some way? Or is that something that even if I don't have knowledge of it, it's not going to harm me? If it's not going to harm you, that knowledge, you not knowing it, then it's better you get rid of it off your device and carry on with something that is going to increase you in Iman. It is going to purify your soul. It is going to give you more knowledge of your religion. A student of knowledge has to be miserly. Normally, miserliness is a bad characteristic. But a student of knowledge has to be miserly when it comes to his time. Time is not a commodity that you have a lot of. So the student of knowledge has to be miserly with his time. I've read examples of uh, all this. I mean, now they're talking about a lockdown. I haven't uh, read the uh, update, but apparently it's going to come in now which means that the lessons are going to be cancelled more than likely, almost definitely, for the next uh, month, I think it's going to be. I haven't read it myself yet, but from what appears to be coming through, is that it's going to be for a month, which means the lessons are going to be gone for a month. And if that's the case, everything we're saying now becomes very relevant to everybody. After a month, if it works out like that, a month the lessons are gone, and then we come back after a month, nobody should be in a position where they come back after a month, and that month, they've done absolutely nothing. Month has been wasted in nothing. Wasted without any improvement in your level of knowledge, wasted without any improvement in your memorization, in how much Qur'an you know, hadith. You should not be upon that way. So you need to think carefully when it comes to this time. Now, I was going to mention, I've read examples of some of the students of knowledge, in, uh, some of the Arab students, etc., in, in Saudi and other places, during these times where lockdowns happened everywhere, in, in Arab countries as well, Saudi everywhere, lockdowns happened, curfews happened, much more than here. Here it's been a you know, lockdown, you can go where you want. Go out and I'm doing my exercise and I'm going to Azdan. But in other places they had lockdowns and curfews and everything properly. But some of the students they mentioned during that time, when they were unable to go out and mosques were closed and lessons were all off and everything was cancelled, they said during that month or two months or three months, some of them have written out examples as an encouragement for other people, not uh, desiring anything else, but as an encouragement. Some of them did the checking of a full book, for example. Did the tahqiq of a full book. It's locked down anyway. Sit down at home, we're here, this is the decree of Allah, this is how it is. So use your time in that which benefits. And they've done a checking of a whole book. Some of them they wrote that they have picked out benefits from Ibn Qayyim's books. One of the guys or one of the students he wrote that he went through, I don't know, 10 or 20 volumes or 30 volumes 
of Ibn al-Qayyim's book during lockdown. And he picked out benefits from all of those volumes. Read them all. Lockdown, what else are you going to do? Where else are you going to go? So if it works out like that now, that in the next month, however it works out and what the restrictions and whatever they're going to be, don't allow this to be wasted. This is something which is, it could be carrying on for who knows how long. Allah alam what's going to happen and all of the winter and next year, all these COVID and lockdowns and everything, who knows? But a student of knowledge needs to be sharp. Don't sit there wasting your time in all of this, you know, whatever's going on and not doing any studying, not doing any memorization, not going over your books. We've just been talking about Kitab al-Tawheed. If you don't even know the Kitab al-Tawheed chapters and you don't even know some of those basic affairs, then what are you doing with your time? You, now, if lockdowns and these things happen, you have been afforded extra time. You've been given extra time. If you're locked down and you're not allowed to go out and here and there, and you're stuck at home, then you have extra time now to do something with it. Some people will waste that time and do nothing with it. And so after a year or two years or however long all of this is going to carry on, they come out at the end of it after two or three years with all types of knowledge that if they hadn't learned it in that two or three years, they wouldn't be in any position of being in any harm. But the fact that they've lost on that opportunity in learning what they should have been learning, then that is something which harms them. That you miss your opportunity to be learning Quran and Sunnah, to be learning Hadith, to be learning the books, learning the Mutun, then that's a calamity. So a student needs to remember his focus. That focus of knowledge never changes. It never changes. Calamities and whatever's going on, you are always upon the worship of Allah. You are always upon the obedience to Allah. And that obedience to Allah can only be fulfilled via knowledge. From the signs of salvation are the ones who have Iman and do righteous actions. What is the meaning of having Iman? How is that Iman? Through knowledge. And that's why the scholars, they say, when people say to you, how do I increase my Iman? The greatest method in increasing Iman is, scholars, they mention it. We've mentioned it many times here before. Seeking knowledge. Talabul ilm. Because seeking knowledge leads to actions and obedience and worship. The more knowledge you seek, the more worship you do upon righteousness to Allah, which means your Iman increases. And because you're doing all of that worship and obedience to Allah now, and your Iman is increasing, it makes you want to do more seeking of knowledge. And the more you do of that then, and the more you learn of the Quran, and the more, more you learn of the Sunnah, your Iman increases even more, making you want to do even more obedience and actions and that's why the scholars they say connects directly the more you learn and seek knowledge your iman becomes stronger which makes you want to do more worship so when you do more worship your iman gets stronger which makes you want to learn more and the more you learn and you keep going back 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 higher 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 that is the way of the talib al-ilm this is the type of advice the scholars they give day and night for years Every day this is what you hear. 
This is how the scholars, they give the tarbiyah to the tullah. You have to have the focus with what you're doing and what you're learning. So kashr shubhat, now we're halfway through, more than halfway through. Everybody should know what the first half was about. You remember, and we've mentioned many times before, what Sheikh Ubaid al-Jabiri, Hafizullah Ta'ala used to mention, he used to say that people who come to the lessons or students or attendees of knowledge are two types. One is the, the guest, and one is the talib al-ilm. A guest, somebody who comes to your house is a guest. What do you expect them to do? Nothing. A guest comes to your house, you expect them to do nothing. You want them to just sit, relax. You're going to do everything for them. The Shaykh used to say, don't be a guest when it comes to seeking knowledge. Don't be a guest when it comes to seeking knowledge. That you don't do anything. That you don't actually learn. That you don't actually memorize. You don't actually benefit. You don't actually make notes. Don't be a guest when it comes to knowledge. Be a student of knowledge. Be the one who focuses on that and strives with it. So remember that. The statement of the Prophet ﷺ, he used to seek refuge in knowledge that does not benefit, or refuge in Allah from knowledge that does not benefit. So just to finish this last line then, كَيْفَ يُحَرِّمُ اللَّهُ عَلَيْكَ هَذَا وَيَذْكُرْ أَنَّهُ لَا يَغْفِرُ وَلَا تَسْأَلُ عَنْهُ وَلَا تَعْرِفُ How can it be that Allah has made this haram upon you and has mentioned that He will not forgive it and you don't find out about it? You know this is haram and Allah won't forgive it if you die upon it and you don't find out about it and you don't seek knowledge about it. Do you think Allah is going to make it haram but not clarify it to us? Of course not. Allah has clarified the affairs and they are there to be learned. But who are those who will learn? And that is why Shaykh al Hamin used to say, he mentioned, he used to say the doors to goodness are open. They're everywhere. But where are the people who want to come into them? The doors to goodness are open everywhere. Look at the knowledge available, the scholars, the lessons. The doors to goodness are open everywhere. He used to say. But where are the people who want to go through? And uh, uh, something like subul subulul khayri kathira, the pathways to knowledge are many. Like in ayna salikun, the pathways to goodness are many. But where are the people who want to walk on those pathways? Where are they? That's who you want to be from. You want to be from the dakhilun and from the salikun, from those who are entering and from those who are treading upon that pathway. You want to be tulabul ilm, students of knowledge. Learning properly, understanding, memorizing. And so that is something of a reminder, perhaps useful for us all. If it is going to be as they say it may be, that there may be a lockdown and classes may be cancelled for a few weeks, then to bear those things in mind and to continue in utilizing your time usefully in that which benefits and not in knowledge that is of no benefit. And the final thing we'll mention, some of the brothers here are involved in the memorization program. We had set some dates, and those dates were going to begin either today or next week. 
So those dates, if the lockdown's affected, we'll try and arrange it some other way, maybe some online way where we can continue with that memorization program, insha'Allah ta'ala. So we'll conclude upon that for now then. Wa sallallahu ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Anything to add, any question? You know, uh, getting tired when you study for a long time, you have to have schedules, break them down, proper schedules that you stick to. And we used to do that at the University of Medina, proper schedules that you stick to. And in those time slots that you've got something fitted into, then you work properly and hard in that time slot. To the extent that your brain hurts, you know, uh, when you're memorizing something, memorizing, 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 you can't physically make your brain hurt, but it feels like it. The amount that you do in those time slots, it feels like it. You have to remember why you are seeking the knowledge in the first place. Why are you seeking this knowledge? You are seeking it ultimately to be able to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala properly. You are seeking this knowledge for the pleasure of Allah. Seeking it for the reward from Allah in the afterlife of paradise. Remember those sincere and pure intentions as to why you are seeking this knowledge. Then when you're doing it, have absolute focus. You need to put the phones away. It is a tremendous blessing. I consider this as a personal story. I consider it as an absolute blessing that all of this social media and these smartphones and things None of it existed when I was at the university. Internet and everything, nothing. No smartphones, no internet, no Twitter, no Facebook, no uh, Instagram, all the, nothing existed. It was barely coming in in those days. Barely coming in. Just barely people were getting to know something, Twitter, this, that. At the end when I graduated. The years we were there, when I started, I used to have, what do you call it, the Nokia 5, something, the brick they call it. Nokia, 3310, whatever it's called, the snake game. I used to have that brick. That was the phone. And there was no internet. There was no smartphone. There was no WhatsApp. None of that business. And I consider that a huge blessing. That you're able to do your work with no distractions. Pick up your phone. What is that? There's nothing on your phone. The Nokia 3310, there's nothing on it. That gray, black and gray screen. Tiny little screen. Nokia sign of those bars with your thing on the side. There's nothing on it. There was no distractions, no internet, nothing to go on and start looking at this and that. No millions of WhatsApp messages and groups, no forwards, nothing. Put your phone down and focus on your work. Nowadays, the problem is there. So nowadays you have to remedy the problem. You have to turn that off. You have to put it aside. You have to be able to do that. If you can't, then you have a great weakness in your ability as a student of knowledge. 
that you can't put that aside to focus for 40 minutes, for one hour, for one hour, 30 minutes. You have to have fixed schedules, keep them short. Half an hour at a time, 40 minutes at a time. With Arabic, with this, with that, with memorization, with hadith. Small schedules and you focus 100% in those small slots. Don't try and sit there with a one and a half hour or two hour session and you're going to memorize. For example, you're doing Arba'in Nawawi, 40 hadith. You think, okay, let me start. I'm going to do two hour sessions every night. I'm going to do 10 hadith a night. The majority of people aren't going to be able to do that. So don't burn yourself out with schedules that you can't keep. Better you stick to 30 minutes a night and do a small section of it every night. Man rama al-ilma jumlatan, dhahaba anhu jumlatan. Whomsoever tries to seek knowledge all in one go, it will disappear from him all in one go. Small bits you build on every day, you will see that building very quickly, very quickly. You think to yourself, but 20 minutes a day, that's all I'm gonna do, I can do an hour, two hours. 20 minutes a day, stick to it. In a month, how much have you done? In two months, how much have you done? And the time flies by, flies by. Flies by how many Ramadans after Ramadans they come and they go to the next one. Khairul Amali Ma The best of the actions are that which is less, Aqalluhu, but the Adwamuhu. It's consistent, persistent, regular. So if you study regular, even if it's a smaller amount, that's better than somebody trying big chunks and then it's all over the place here and there. They're doing it some weeks, they're not doing it other weeks. Have a schedule, put it into your schedule, 20 minutes Qur'an every day, 20 minutes this every day, 20 minutes that twice a week, and you stick to that, you notice the difference in a month. You notice the difference in two months. You'll see how much you're doing and how much you're picking up. But the problem is that people don't do that. They don't have schedules, they don't have fixed times with seeking knowledge, they don't have times of memorization, and so years go by, and you've done nothing. Years go by, and you're in the same position you were 10 years ago. You're in the same position you were five years ago. Nothing has happened. So it's about that focus and schedules. The scholars used to advise it. Schedules, where you're focusing on that knowledge and you're reading and you're memorizing. So if you do that with sincerity, bits at a time, inshallah, you will see the progress. You will see it. Here now, look, some of the brothers have been participating in memorization. The memorization schedule we set up a while ago before we stopped. At that time when we set it up, brothers finished five or six mutun. They finished five or six books we memorized. And now we're going to start it again, inshallah, for those who want to participate. And within two months, three months, four months, six months, you'll see again. You'll finish another three books, four books, five books. It's done with consistency. So we'll uh, conclude upon that for today then, inshallah ta'ala, whenever the next time will be then. وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم